This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. I am extremely gracious to introduce our author tonight. Um, as somebody who feels, I feel like I'm an avid reader, I honestly consider this like one of the best books I've read all year. Um, he is the current Audley Schilling Professor of English and Creative Writing at the University of Mississippi. Along with many articles and essays, he has written three books, uh, a novel titled Long Division, an essay collection called How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, and tonight he is here to debut his memoir called Heavy. Um, it has received nothing but praise um, since its release. And uh, Martha Ann Toll's review in the N NPR calls it, um, or she says, I should say, this is a memoir to read and reread, while Anna DeVries refers to Lehman as simply one of the most talented writers in America. So please give a round of applause to Kiese Lehman. Hello. Thank you for that amazing introduction. I feel like I got to know you and everything backstage. Thank y'all for coming. Rachel and Leona like held me down for four years at Vassar. And there's so many people in here who um, made it possible for me to be here. And I'm not going to do that black Mississippi thing and say everybody's name. <laughs> but just please know that I see you. Um, and uh, Matt Parker, I definitely see you, too. Uh, all right, y'all. So thank you for coming out on Friday night. Friday night in D.C., I guess you could be doing anything. So you came out here to listen to me talk about this book. Um, there's going to be some cussing in it. I'm looking at a little guy right here. I hope that's okay. Maybe not. Is that okay? Are you his mommy? Is that okay? Okay. 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 All right. <laughs> All right, so y'all, um, I've been on the road last two weeks, every other city doing something, um, and I am physically tired, but soulfully, like, I'm, I'm really ready to connect with y'all. Um, they told me they wanted me to read for 30 minutes. I'm not going to read for 30 minutes. I'm going to probably read for, like, 15 to 20 minutes, and we can open it up for a conversation. Um, this book was probably, the hard, hopefully, the hardest thing I'll ever write, and hopefully not the best thing I'll ever write, because I'm working on a few projects now that I hope can be okay. But what I want to do is I want to read uh, from a chapter called Contraction. And all you really need to know is that the book is directly addressed to my mother. I'm writing to you. Um, some of you maybe more than others, but directly addressed to my mom. And at this point in the book, um, I have my first girlfriend. She is a white girl. My mom does not know about that. The night that we see Rodney King get beat 10, she finds out, and then I get beaten. And that's pretty much all you need to know, all right? So thank y'all so much for coming out. Hey, all right, here we go. On March 4th, 1991, a few weeks after we lost in the playoffs, I went to Jabari's house after open gym. Abby Claremont was going to pick me up later that night, have sex in the park, a lot of red lobster, and take me to the end of my street where I would walk home. While we were watching a basketball game, the news was interrupted with a video of a gang of white police officers surrounding four other white police officers. The four officers in the middle were beating the life out of a chained, heavy black man. We watched the news replay the video four times. We all had cops rough us up, chase us, pull guns on us, call us out our names. We all watched cops shame our mamas, aunties, and grandmamas. We all floated down I-55, creating lyrical force fields from police and everything the police protected and served, rapping, a young nigga got it bad cause I'm brown. But here we were in one of our safe spaces, watching white folk, watch white police, watch other white police destroy our body. Abby Claremont's horn surprised me. What's wrong? She asked as I got in her convertible. Nothing, I said, and kept picking around the mini bag of Funyuns I took from Jabari's house. 
can we put the top up? Can you just take me home? Why? My mama just said I had to be home earlier than usual. She's sick. The flu. You are such a fucking liar, Keith, she said. Tell me why you want the top up. I'm asking. And what is that smell? I looked at her in a way I'd never looked at her before. Why are you looking at me like that? She said. Say it. Can we just talk about what we're doing tomorrow? Usually when I got out of Abby Claremont's convertible, we kissed on the lips with lots of tongue. Tonight I kissed Abby Claremont on her cheek and told her thanks for being so nice to me. She started trying to talk to me about what was happening at home between her father and her mother, but I told her I could not talk about that right now because you were sick. Asshole, she said as I got out of the car. Don't fucking call me tonight either or tomorrow. When I got in the house, you brought your belt across my neck. Earlier in the day, Miss Andrews, one of your friends who was a teacher at my school, told you, Coach Schlitzer said I was in a sexual relationship with a white girl. You heard this news on the same day you watched a gang of white police officers try to kill a chained black man they later claimed had Hulk-like strength. I did not know Rodney King, but I could tell by how he wiggled, rolled, and ran, he was not a Hulk. Hoax did not beg for mercy. Hoax did not shuffle from ass whippings. Hoax had no memories, no mamas. I wondered what niggas and police were to a Hulk. I wondered if all 16-year-old Americans had a little Hulk in them. I knew, or maybe I accepted for the first time, no matter what anyone did to me, I would never beg for mercy. I would always recover. There was physically nothing anyone could do to me to take my heart other than kill me. You, Grandmama, and I had the same kind of Hulk in our chest. We would always recover. At some point during my beating, I just stopped fighting and I let you hit me. I did not scream. I did not yell. I barely breathed. I took my shirt off without you telling me. I let you beat me across my back. It was the only beating in my life where watching you beat me as hard as you could felt good. After the beating, you came to my bedroom. You told me I really needed to think about the difference between loving someone and loving how someone made me feel. You said if I liked Abby Claremont and liked how she made me feel, I really needed to ask myself why. You kept telling me I was beautiful. You said there were plenty of black girls in school and I would be safer, quote unquote, courting one of them. You used words like fetish and experimentation and miscegenation. You said Abby Claremont's parents were breaking up over our relationship. You said Abby Claremont didn't know me well enough to love me and only love the excitement that came with the danger of being with the black boy who drove her father crazy. I wasn't sure if you were right, but I knew you were in no position to give me advice about relationships, given your experiences with Malachi Hunter. And I told you exactly that. You beat my body the fuck up again that night. I did not cry. I just watched you swing down until your arms got tired. What is wrong with you, Key? You kept asking. I know you're a better child than this. What is wrong with you? I did not answer because I did not know. Abby Claremont and I continued to have sex until near the end of the school year, even though I lied and told you we thought it was safer to just be friends. One weekend when Malachi Hunter invited you to New Orleans, I told you I was staying at Lathan's house. When you left, I climbed through a window I left open and Abby Claremont and I spent the entire weekend having sex in your bed. We did not use condoms. That Sunday night, Abby Claremont sat on the edge of your bed talking about cycles of depression in her family and how our relationship was triggering responses from her parents she never expected. I never heard actual real-life person use the word depression before. Scarface was the only artist I knew of who talked about depression. I didn't understand what depression meant, so I told myself it was a made-up white word Scarface stole, and it must have meant extremely sad. I asked Abby Claremont if she thought we should stop seeing each other since our relationship was making people in both of our families extremely sad. I'm not talking about extreme sadness, she said. I'm talking about depression. A few weeks later, she saw me, you saw me, crying in my bedroom after I found out Abby Claremont was considering hooking up with Donnie G's cousin, a kid with the highest vertical leap in Jackson. You asked me what was wrong. I told you I was upset that you and my father didn't try harder to make it work. That made you cry and apologize. That made me smile and tell more lies. 
other than playing basketball, writing paragraphs, and having sex with Abby Claremont, making you feel what you didn't want to feel when you didn't want to feel it was one of the best things in my world, one of the best feelings. Another incredible feeling was getting away with lying to Abby Claremont after we got back together. I congratulated myself for only kissing and having sexy conversations with other girls, but never having sex with them at Donnie G's parties. Donnie G didn't drink our entire senior year because our entire junior year because he wanted a basketball scholarship. I lied and told Donnie G I wasn't drinking for the same reason. Really, I was afraid I'd hurt myself or someone else if I ever got drunk again. Before the first party of the year at Donnie G's, Donnie G and I bought two 40 ounces of St. Ives. We poured out the Marlick and filled up both empty bottles with off-brand apple juice. We checked each other's nose for floating boogers. We checked our breath for that dragon. We stuffed our mouths with apple nihilators and cherry nerds. When Donnie G's doorbell rang, we stumbled around the house whispering Jodeci lyrics inches under the earlobes of girls who did not run from us. Abby Claremont wasn't at the party because she was on punishment for dating me. About three hours into Donnie G's party, Kamala Lackey asked me to follow her into one of the bedrooms. I walked in the dark room behind Kamala Lackey, loud rapping Fife scenario verse. The room we walked in was the same room where Donnie G and I watched Clarence Thomas talk about experiencing a high-tech lynching when Anita Hill told on him for sexually harassing her. I knew Clarence Thomas was lying because there was no reason in the world for Anita Hill to lie because I never met one older man who treated women the way he wanted to be treated. Every older man I knew treated every woman he wanted to have sex with like a woman he wanted to have sex with. Clarence Thomas seemed as cowardly as every other older man to me. Once Kamala Lackey and I were in the bedroom, I complimented her on hair I couldn't see and asked her where she got perfume I couldn't smell. I turned on the light. Kamala Lackey just sat on the edge of Donnie G's bed, her fists filled with the comforter, her eyes staring toward the window. I wondered how drunk she was. You, you look like Theo Huxtable tonight. I remember Kamala Lackey stuttering as she got up and turned the light off. I was a sweaty, bald head, 6'1", 225 pound black boy from Jackson, Mississippi. I owned one pair of jeans, those fake jabos that were actually yours, and one decent sweatshirt. Nothing about me looked, moved, or sounded like Theo Huxtable. When Kamala asked me if I wanted to see her boobs, I ignored her question, assumed she was definitely drunk, and tried to tell her what I hated about the Cosby show. The sweaters, the corny kids, the problems that weren't problems, the smooth jazz, the manufactured cleanliness, the non-existent poverty just didn't do it for me. It wasn't only that the Cosbys were never broke or in need of money, or that none of their black family members and friends were ever in material need of anything important. It was that only in science fiction could a black man doctor who delivered mostly white babies and a black woman lawyer who worked at a white law firm come home and never once talk mess about the heartbreaking, violent machinations of white folk at both of their jobs and the harassing, low-down, predictable advances of men at Claire's office. I remember telling Kamala Lackey how never in the history of real black folk could black life as depicted on The Cosby Show ever exist. And it only existed on The Cosby Show because Bill Cosby seemed obsessed with how white folk watch black folk watch us watch him. I didn't exactly say it that way, though. <laughs> Bill Cosby and them, they be lying too much, is what I said. <laughs> that shit fake. <laughs> you think it's because white people be watching? Why you still watch that show, Kamala Lackey asked me. A different world is way better. When I got ready to ask her why Denise wasn't on the show no more, Kamala Lackey asked me again if I wanted to see her boobs. Of course I wanted to see Kamala Lackey's boobs, or of course I wanted Kamala Lackey to think I wanted to see her boobs, or of course I wanted to know Kamala Lackey wanted me to see her boobs. When I faked yawn and coughed, Kamala Lackey stood up and asked if I had any more nihilators. After I handed her what was left of the pack, she asked if I was really drunk. Before I could lie, Kamala Lackey told me she wasn't drunk either. She sat on the floor with her back pressed against my knees and made me promise not to tell anyone what she was about to tell me. I promised. 30 minutes later, 
When Kamala Lackey stopped talking, she also stopped digging her fingers into Donnie G's nappy carpet. You know what I'm trying to say? She finally asked and stood in front of the bed. I just feel like I'm dying sometimes. I said I understood, even though I didn't understand why she was saying any of it to me. You gonna say something? I remember her asking. Go ahead, you know you can talk, right? I wanted to tell Kamala Lackey that when I was younger, a few miles from where we were, I got drunk off this box wine you kept in the house. I drank until I was numb because it helped me feel better about what was being done to lips, nipples, necks, thighs, a penis, and a vagina in our house. It felt so scary. I felt so stuck. It all felt like love too, until it didn't. Then it felt like dying. But I didn't say any of that. I told Kamala Lackey, thank you for talking to me. I told her I wouldn't tell my boys anything she told me if she didn't tell her girls I was acting drunk. Then we just sat there wondering who would walk out first. Like most of the kids at Donnie G's party, I had to sit and listen to hundreds of talks from you and your friends telling me no black hoodies in the wrong neighborhood, no jogging at night, hands in plain sight at all times in public, no intimate relationships with white women, never drive over the speed limit or do those roll and stop at stop signs, always speak the King's English in the presence of white folk, never get outperformed in school or in public by white students, and most importantly, always remember no matter what, white folk will do anything to get you. I listened hard. I never heard the word sexual violence or violent sex or sexual abuse from one family member, one teacher, or one preacher, but my body knew sexual violence and violent sex were as wrong as anything police or white folk could do to us. The night Kamala Lackey talked with me, I walked out of Donnie G's room the same way I walked in loudly rapping Fife scenario verse with a turned up 40 in one hand and cup testicles in the other. Kamala Lackey rolled her eyes at me, shook her head and turned left down the hall. I turned right. When Donnie G asked me if I had sex with Kamala Lackey, I smirked and said, fool, what you think? I remember feeling really good about myself because I technically didn't lie to Donnie G and technically didn't touch Kamala Lackey so I didn't technically cheat on Abby Claremont, the only girl I'd ever kissed. The night Kamala Lackey told me her secrets, I promised I'd never sexually violate or sexually abuse any woman or girl on earth. The existence of that promise was enough to excuse myself for lying to Abby Claremont and any other girl who wanted to have sex with me. I was 16 years old. I'd become something far more violent than a Hulk. I was a liar, a cheater a manipulator, a fat, happy, sad, big, bald head, black boy with a heart murmur. And according to you and the white girl I lied to every day, I was a good dude. Thanks. All right, what's up, David? Hey. How you doing? Y'all want to talk about stuff? If you do, raise your hand. Or no, if you do what? Go to a mic? Yeah. If you do, go to a mic. Hey. How you doing? How are you doing? I'm all right, man. All right. I'm all right. It's Friday night. It's really, really bright. All right. I have one simple question for you. Do you like your mom? Wow. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, is that it's obvious you love your mom. And, you know, but there's that saying that says that you can love someone and still not like them. Yeah. So what I'm asking you is, based on everything I've read from your book and read in other contexts, <laughs> do you like your mom? And you can elaborate <laughs> on that as much or as little as you want. So. Thanks. Uh, dang, you like to start. <laughs> <laughs> no crawling, no crawling tonight. Um, I'm more than like my mom. Um, uh, 
I'm gonna try to be brief. That's a big question. So um, I'm here because my mama gave me a writerly practice. She made me write in the morning. She made me write at night. Same practice I have to this day. We were talking about that in the back. Um, she also gave me a practice of what it meant meant to publicly love black folk in the work we do. She gave me a practices and 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 the way of understanding that like that sort of love. Um, is going to be confronted every single day in every which way by forces left and right that we can't see. But my mom, like a lot of other moms who had their babies when they were young, struggled. She struggled to love herself. She struggled to get out of abusive relationships. And sometimes she took out abuse that was happening to her on me. Um, and often when she did it, she said she was doing it to protect me from white folk. So I do not like the fact that my mama sometimes beat and abused me under the auspice of trying to stop me from getting beaten and abused by white people because it just doesn't work. Right. Didn't work for her and I don't think it works for anybody. Sure. So I do not like that. I, I do not like that my mom sometimes still feels as brilliant as she is that she can't tell the truth. Mm. But that just makes her an American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I, I do like my mom, but but like every child in this nation, some days I don't like some things that my mama has done to herself or to me. And I like my mom far more than I like myself, which is not your question, but that's the truth. Okay. So appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Look at all your look at all your friends. I'm I know gonna... I know some friends of yours. I don't know you, but I, I wanted to. That, that was a difficult question. Yeah. Um, I wanted to to tell you uh, this book is so hard for me to read because it resonates so deep mm -hmm. for whatever reason. So thank you because memoir is hard. Right. And I've seen in the press that you've talked about the vulnerability of this. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to lay your your story bare and to say these real truths when people do not want to hear it? Yeah, thank you for that. What's your name? Heather. Oh, okay. Um, so what's it like? Uh, I mean, I feel a lot of things. We, we were just talking in the back about practices to take care of yourself after events like this or writing a book like this. And, and I don't really have good practices. Um, I'm, I'm trying to develop some good practices. But... Yeah, writing a book like this is scary. But again, like my mama, my mama, my mama created a writer. Like, like I'm a I'm a writer from Mississippi, and so I wish I could have written this book 10, 15 years ago. I wish I could have written this book when y'all were letting me teach you and when I was learning from y'all. But I just couldn't. I didn't have the courage. I hadn't had those two books behind me. So when I come out and I share this kind of book with people, and you know the people who know you and feel you, whether they know you or not. And so people across this country, for the most part, especially black folks, have been holding my hand through this and making me feel a lot heavier, which is what I hoped for. It's not a book about trying to get lighter. It's about communally trying to get heavier to fight back against all of this shit we have to deal with and to want to like wake up in the morning. So it's scary. And every day people say things about me or my mother or my relationship to my body that I didn't see coming. But much more than that, people are saying like, thank you for writing that. I wanna write something back to you. I wanna write something back like that to my, to my mother, father, person who took care of me. And so that, that makes me feel happy. That makes me feel like I'm doing something decent with what my mama gave me, which was a which was a writerly practice. But it's very scary. I mean, it's scary. I'm not going to front. Like that's that question right there is a scary question, you know, and, and you want to answer it honestly. And um, so. So it's scary, but I think I might. I think I might. Hey. How are you? Um, thank you so much for being here. I was really blown away by your story. Um, one time you mentioned, I think it was on Facebook, um, just admiring the work of Jasmine Ward and mm. Rachel Kadzigansa and mm. sort of talking about some things that they do as writers that you wish you could do. And in my mind, 
you're a brilliant writer who can do everything. Mm. Um, but I would just be curious about some other current writers like them who you admire mm. and what it is about their writing that you aspire to. Or- yeah, well, I, I'll talk just briefly about those two. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Jasmine is a superhero. Like, from where, where I'm from, like, I'm from Mississippi. She's from the coast of Mississippi. She's a superhero for a number of reasons, but she's mostly a superhero because most of us black folk from Mississippi who grew up wanting to be writers were told we had to mimic Faulkner, right? That was it. We had to imitate Faulkner. We had to reread Faulkner. We had to understand Faulkner. And it really was like like high school, middle school was like Faulkner appreciation for a lot of us. I'm not even fronting who wanted to be writers, right? Jasmine took those rules and out Faulknered Faulkner. I don't give a fuck what nobody says. Like, I love Faulkner. I think Go Down Moses is, is like Faulkner's most amazing work. But like, I think if Faulkner were alive, at his drunkest state, he would have to admit that Jasmine exceeded what 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 he's possible, what he's capable of doing. So, I love that she took the rules that we were given and she applied those rules to a part of our experience. I'm from Jackson. I'm not from the rural parts of the state, so I couldn't really apply those Faulknerian rules to like an urban Mississippi context. That's just not what I. That's not what I wanted to do, and I couldn't do it. But I wish that I. I wish that I could. Even if I, even if, even if I, I don't really think ethically want to, I wish I could. I just can't. Rachel is just like she's just the best long form journalist, I think, in this country. I mean, she made a genre out of attempting to interview people she couldn't find. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you've read her interviews about Dave Chappelle, if you read her stuff about Kendrick Lamar, you know, she, if you read even the stuff she does about Dylan Roof, like, she's made a genre out of not just interviewing people, but, like, the search to interview people that you can't find, which to me is what, like, American journeys are always about, right? Like, they're not just about finding what you think. They're about not finding it and making, like, a, a relevant, um, like, like, rich story about that. Zandria Robinson is somebody else who, if y'all don't know now, I think you're gonna know in a few years from Memphis. And like she, she's 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 that's my family, that's my heart. She's a classically classically trained violinist, but she understands like trap, soul, and us. I think better than any writer that I've ever read. She's got a memoir coming out like in a year and a half or so, and she just like more than any of those other writers. Like I want to do what what Zandria does. Like, and I think Zandria wants to do what I do, and she does it what I do better than me. You know, that's just shit. That's just true. Um, and then also, I just think a lot of the poets, like a lot of the poets that are just coming out, like I, I can't, I write poems all the time, but I never have the audacity to show anybody the, the poems I write, you know? Um, and that, you know, whether we're talking about Eve Ewing, whether we're talking about Clint Smith, whether we're talking about Jericho fucking Brown, who is just like not real, you know, to me. I just think there are a lot of writers out there that are just doing things that I really wish... I could do when I work on it privately, but I don't have the confidence yet to show it to people. So thank you. Um, Thank you so much for your reading. Um, I do work on black girlhood and those kinds of coming of age stories. So I'm really interested in stories about the coming of age of black boys. Um, And your work reminds me a lot of um, writers like Richard Wright's Mm. um, Uncle Tom's Children and Ralph Ellison's story, yeah. Go Tell It on the Mountain. Yeah. Um, and from your reading, what I really liked are the mirror images that you had with the beating of Rodney King and how your mother beat you, and right. the conversation with the girl in the car and then the girl in the bedroom, these kind right. of mirror images. Yeah. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about is the use of the Hulk and, yeah. um, and as like a trope in for superheroes in right. stories of coming of age stories. Right. Can you speak a little bit more about why you chose that figure? Yeah. Is it because he's big and muscular, but there's a vulnerability within him and just that kind of a mirror of you as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, so I, I love to try to do mirror stuff in Long Division. There's two different books and I tried to create mirror characters in that. And in this one, I didn't want to be so explicit but that chapter is definitely like there's mirroring going on. Um, I mean, literally, they said Rodney King had Hulk-like strength. Like they, they literally said that that man who we all saw wiggling on the ground, 
begging him not to beat him. We both saw try to run away. He couldn't even run with any sort of like gracefulness. He's like flailing. They said he had Hulk-like strength. I just think that's more than ironic. I think that's terrifying to tell the world what we see. We didn't see a fucking Hulk. I mean, black people didn't see a Hulk. We saw a chained up black man getting his ass whooped in front of, but well, by four police officers who were surrounded by four other police officers in front of the nation. And so I'm trying to at once critique that notion that we are indestructible. But I'm also trying to say as a black boy growing up, I was taught by black boys who were taught by black boys who were taught by black boys that black girls were in essence like hoaxes could not be like you could do whatever you wanted to a black girl. She and they were going to be okay. I learned that from black boys, I learned that from patriarchy, I learned that from my presidents, right? Do whatever the fuck you want to do to black women. They're going to be okay. And so I'm trying to show in this chapter that one, none of us are okay. This idea that we will recover <laughs> We don't recover. And that doesn't mean that we don't like, we're not tough. It just means that like when people like literally beat us, structurally beat us, and even if we win, like the accumulated scars of those battles, we pass those things on and they impact the way we move. You know, I won some battles 10 years ago. I can't walk straight today because of those battles. I should be able to walk straight. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I'm trying to push this notion of like recovery but also think about the way it is gendered. Like the Hulk, we often see is like this. Yeah. But in my family, I was told my grandmama was a Hulk. I was told my mama was a Hulk. And I saw men treat them like they were fucking Hulks, do things to their bodies that I think you should never do to a human being. And I was encouraged to do that to other people. And I didn't physically do that to people, but I emotionally did that to people. Do you know what I'm saying? So I just think like, if we're gonna demystify and obliterate this notion of Hulk-likeness, or this idea that like black folk, particularly black women, will always recover. I think we have to be honest about our investments in like a violence that sort of like agrees with it, even if it's not, we know it's not true. So thank you so much for that, for that question. Hey, I'm good, how are you? Good, um, first, thank you so much for thank your you. book. And I think um, it's really tough to do something like this without folks maybe receiving it as like pathology or, right. or making broader statements about kind of your lived context. And so I appreciate you for sharing that, that story and being so patient and walking people through this. Um, my question is around absence. You talked about your father briefly uh, in, in kind of the beginning of the book. And I'm curious how that, that has informed intimacy for you. And not like trying to get in your business, but like <laughs> just in terms of how you form relationships. Um, and yeah. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. So, uh... <laughs> So my, so, so my father comes up, I mean, I, I talk, I write about my father and my mother's relationship, what I remember of it. I don't, I don't have, I wrote about the only memory I have of it, because I don't have memories of it, right? So I wrote about, so I mind the memory. I wrote about um, my, my mother's conversations about my father, which were much more present than my father. And at the end of the book, I wrote about it. Uh, if you read it or not, like, you know, my, my father comes to see me. I'm a professor at Vassar. He's running from something. He won't talk to me about what he's running from. He um, he goes to sleep on my on my couch, and for the first time in my life, I think I see what my mom must have seen in him to fall in love with him. And so, in that moment, it doesn't it doesn't make me feel closer to my father. It makes me feel closer to my mother. And so, like fam, like all I'm trying to say is like it's, it's sort of complicated. Like like I realize that my mama needed a loving partner a generous, tender partner, far more than I needed a present father. I, I mean, I'm open to hearing all kind of stuff, but I, you, you, it's going to be hard for somebody to tell me that's not true. Like, I didn't need a present father. I saw what present fathers did in a lot of houses in my neighborhood. Present? Like, then that's all we talk about about black men. Can you just be present? Like, the, you know, like, fuck that present shit. Like, pre, like we don't even, we, we're not even like, can you be a loving father? Like, I definitely needed a loving father. But nobody talks about that. They're just like, was your daddy there? You know? Do you know what I'm saying? And so in the absence of a present father, I did have a loving, like, community, you know? And I would actually, you know, my, my family would, would argue with this, but I think I had a loving, like, queered community that, like, is part of the reason I'm here right now. Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm not trying to evade that question. I'm just trying to say 
My father went through his stuff. I've listened to him talk now in the last few years about what he went through. But growing up, I never had that moment where I was like, I miss my daddy. Never had that shit. I mean, I tried to use that. I tried to manipulate my mom sometimes to be like, why can't I have a dad? You know, like <laughs> I seen some white boy on TV say it or something, you know, because I wanted, you know why I said it? I remember why I said, you know why I said it? Because I wanted a peanut butter parfait. I don't even know what y'all know. Y'all might not even know about peanut butter parfaits, but I was like, my mom picked me up from my boy house. She was like, what's wrong, Key? I was like, I just miss my dad, you know? And then she was like, what can I, what can I do? And I was like, can we get ice cream, you know? That's really what happened. And so, but one reason I didn't miss it was because there was a richness, right? You know, like this is, I was talking about this in New York. Like, I understand that whole rose grows in concrete metaphor. I'm not gonna diss Pac for saying that, but I didn't grow up in no fucking concrete. I grew up in rich Mississippi soil that white folk tried to turn into concrete, but we resisted and then we lost and then we won. You know what I'm saying? So. I wish my mother and my father worked it out because I saw what that loss did to my mama. But I, I for, for, for real, for real, I would take the absence of an unloving father hey, over the presence of an unloving father any day, any day. Hey. Hi, thank you so much for being here. So. Um, I'm writing a memoir myself, so I'm just curious to know, in the process of writing this, what did you learn about yourself that you were not expecting to learn? Mm. Did anything surprise you about you? Yeah, a lot, a lot surprised me about me. Um, so I'm just, I'm the kind of writer who just believes in drafting. I believe that the first four, five, six, seven, eight drafts need to be about discovery. I don't need to be thinking too much about what people are going to say. In those first drafts, I need to be trying to discover. And for me, it was like this. I started this book off because um, I'd seen and I experienced some sexual violence when I was 12. I tried to talk to my tried to write to my grandma about it. She didn't really know what to do with it, and I and I and I didn't go back to that for 30 years. But like this book is really foundation on the two paragraphs I wrote to my grandma. So I learned a lot of things, fam. But the, I'll just say two. One of the things that I learned is that. Um, Yeah, this might be too much, but so because of the family I come from, I think we believe that like when somebody is in need or they say they're in need, you do whatever you can to go out there and give them everything you can, every bit of yourself to save them. What I learned in this book sometimes is like in our family, sometimes there are people who are definitely in need, but they also are are in need of like bringing you like underneath with them. And that is some shit I'm sure people who go to therapy already knew. <laughs> I'm from Mississippi, I ain't go to therapy, right? Like I, sh I need to. And so like I learned that like loving my mama, for example, doesn't just mean giving her every single thing she asked for. It means talking to her about why she might want it, which is different. Most of my life, if I had it, I'm giving it to her. If I didn't have it, I was gonna find a way. I also learned, um, I mean, and I say this in this chapter that like, because the bar is so low for like cisgendered heterosexual men, you can, you can pat yourself on the back and you can get patted on the back often for not saying the B word, for not ever initiating sexual relationships, for fucking majoring in women's studies, you know what I mean? Which is what I did for talking and teaching about feminist texts. But like that kind of stuff can also make you more lethal to people, to women. And like, I should have thought about that shit before, but like the most harm that I've done in my life as a grown man has been because those things were, 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 were utilized to harm people who would never, ever, ever harm me, which means I was like completely abusive without putting my hands on anybody, without any of that kind of shit. But like in a way that I think is equally even more destructive. And I should have known that before, but I didn't. So all of the women's study stuff that I learned, I mean, it helped in a lot of ways, but it also helped make me a more potent abuser, if I'm gonna be honest with you. And I did not think about that shit when I was starting to write this book. How much time we got? 
Uh, <laughs> 20 minutes. Damn. All right. Hey. Keith, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, you know, I'm part of a community that expects much out of you. Yes. And much was delivered. So thank, thank you. you for that. That's big. Um, I'm also a bad self-editing person, as you know. <laughs> so here we go. What does it mean? You've joked and made allusions. I think it's a subtle joke that some of us picked up on about uh, some dysfunctions are simply being American. Right. So here's my question. Given the market for pathology, particularly black pathology, even people who in all sincerity or with outward words say they admire some work in sharing that we do, there are certain imperatives, I think, for the black writer and for black folk in general to protect oneself, to have a sense of agency that's onto oneself, and not in any twisted way, but it's of necessity. Yeah. Um, what do you want to say about the navigation? Yeah. I'm sorry to put it this way, brother, but uh, the, uh, the navigation through the marketplace, especially when black writers, once you hit a Nova, we want another Nova. Right. We want another Nova. Right. We want another one. Right. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Uh, and I hope people really hear what you're saying. So that navigate, I mean, well, I think that we all navigate that. I think we navigate that whether we work in chicken plants or whether we up here talking about books. I think I think the shape of the navigation is different, but the but the ingredients are the same. So so for me, like I made the decision when I was 22, I got kicked out of school for taking a library book out of the library. I I made the decision at that point I was never going to center white people in anything I wrote. That doesn't mean I wasn't going to talk to black people on the page about how fucked up white people are. Those, those are two different things. But I think there's a huge marketplace for black correctives of white behavior. Do you know? Like, my book is doing well. My book would be doing a lot better if it was just about trying to tell white people how they need to morally be better so we can all be better, too, you know? And so there's two things with that. One, again, I'm from Mississippi. Fannie Lou Hamer is the most eloquent... Uh, informed, sincere, loving person I've ever not met, you know? And she couldn't get some of these motherfuckers to change. So the notion that, like, I'm going to sit here and tell white people and teach white people about themselves when they wouldn't listen to Fannie Lou Hamer, wouldn't listen to Baldwin, didn't listen to Morrison, and then beat the fuck, beat, beat Obama up, who was the most milk toast of black people you can get, <laughs> you know? They treated this nigga like he was fucking, like, Fannie Lou Hamer, <laughs> you know? So... Sorry, that's what I think, you know? <laughs> What's up, Leslie? Um, so I'm saying all that to say, on one hand, because I practice so much, I'm clear about when I'm writing, how I'm writing. I don't think I'm just writing to, like, black people in the South. I know I'm writing to you. I know I'm writing to Rachel. I know I'm writing to Leona. But I'm aware that other people are watching. So, I'm, you know, I'm talking to different people in the Coliseum. But the reason this shit can't be pure is because my editor... Who is Jesmond's editor? Who is Rachel's editor? Who is Mitchell's editor? Is a white woman. My two publicists are white women. The publisher is a white woman. The people who are on most of these stores that they reach out to so we can have money to take care of our family are white people. So, like, I'm not gonna act like my shit is so pure when it's going through literally 300 white eyes and fucking hands. And, like, if white people try to tell, I mean, there's some stuff. I love my editor. Like, I work to get my editor. But there was a point in here where my editor was like, you know, you need to explain to people what picking a switch means. And so, and so, and so as a writer, I'm, I'm with the people I love, I'm gonna break the fictive illusion. If I, do, if I, if I, if I'm like, grandmama was like, go get a switch. A switch is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So like, Sometimes you gotta, it's collaborative, me and you gotta fight those kind of battles, you know? But the other thing is, and this is not trying to get white people too much credit, is like, you know, like, just like there's different kinds of us, like there's different kinds of them, you know what I'm saying? Like some of them work a little bit harder to not just be, you know, paternal, but actually like loving and tender. Some of them, some of them don't. And so I try hard as I can, brother, to write to you, to write to my mama, to write to the people that made me, but the marketplace makes it hard because it's not pure. It's not like I'm talking directly to you. But the dope thing about our communication and those lower frequencies is that, like, sometimes people think they know what we're saying when they don't know what we're saying. Thank God. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> thank God. So thank you for that hard question. Anything else y'all want to talk about? Hey. I, I, I don't see anybody else. Wait, I just wanted to. 
Uh, Mr. Lehman, I couldn't uh, let you pass by without saying something to you as a fellow Mississippian. Thank you. Where are you from? Hattiesburg. All right. <clears throat> My name is Dory Latner, and uh, I want to say that I'm very proud of you. Clap that up. <laughs> Y'all know who that is? <laughs> very proud of you, and um, you said things that uh, the experiences that I've been through, you're, going, you're much younger as an older person. And uh, I want to say, just keep on pushing, my brother. Thank you. Keep on pushing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Hey. You already know. I, remember I know you. With yes. the Brooklyn, yes. I got off the bus. I'm like, anyway. <laughs> you doing? So this is the deal. Like, when I follow you, it's like, um, it's a lot of courage. Like, I've. It gives me a lot of courage to say, you know, this is what I need to say. But I'm from Alabama, right? And I couldn't, from Mobile, my small town, I can't imagine going back yeah. to live because of the, I don't know if people are ready for the, if they can do the rad radicalness that you want right now right. because of the, the climate or right. just the, right. the the nature of the South. The, right. the progress is not always fast. Right. So I was wondering with you being progressive and I follow you and I read your books. I love Long Division. How is it that you're able to go back to Mississippi and and you and Jasmine? Yeah. Mean, and, well, and, and do what you do that's a great question. in the way that you that's do. That's a great question. Yeah. And you know, like the real answer to that question that somebody asked me before what I learned is that one, when you leave a place, like you don't just keep changing, it, it changes too. And the illest thing about Jackson, about past Christiane on the coast, about parts of, about Alabama, is that real talk, there are people who, do, who, did, who could have left, who chose not yeah. to leave, who are fighting. So like this notion that sometime we go back and we got to bring liberation, it's an interesting concept, but like my city, Jackson is proof that like people who love Jackson stayed there and they fought and they made it so somebody named Chokwe Lumumba, who like my, who was my, you know, Leslie, yeah, like people know who this dude is. I'm not talking about the mayor right now, could become mayor. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like because of, because of people who, who never left Jackson. So I just think it's important for those of us who want to come back to understand that there are people who never left who were fighting for liberation too. And that's hard sometimes to accept because I think we, we think, well, we leave, we get all this education and we come back. Yeah. But when I came back, I actually found that there were people who were like sort of resenting me for leaving because they were like, shit, we could have left too, fam, but we stayed and fought. So you're not going to come down here and talk all down to us, <laughs> right, 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 you know, right. like you better get your hands dirty. And so, like, I try to get my hands dirty and, 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 and follow people who refuse to leave. And I just think everywhere in the country, there's, there's people who refuse to leave. And civil rights movement, for all the shit we talk about, about the Freedom Riders, thank God. But there were people like in Mississippi fighting and the Freedom Riders were following that lead. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I just think it's really important for us to understand, those of us who leave these places, to come back. There are people who stayed and there are people who fought. And if I think if we follow them, we'll be all right. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, good. Thank you. So these will be our last right, questions. Cool. Thank you. Hello. Hey, how are you? Good. I am Lottie Joyner, the editor of the Crisis Magazine, yes. which is the publication of the NAACP. And I just wanted to uh, give some thanks to Ms. Dory Latner, yes. who stood up and acknowledged you. She is one of the freedom writers from Mississippi who you're talking about, who was there before mm -hmm. everyone else got there. She worked with Mega Evers, mm -hmm. right? She was part of the Student student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and she worked on the Mississippi, 1964 Mississippi Freedom Summer Project. Yes. So she, the reason I was screaming back there because she deserves like a lot of praise, right, for all that she's done for our country. Thank you, Ms. Latner. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's all I had to say. Okay. Absolutely, thank you. Hey. How are you? Good. It's good to see um, you. So, I just, um, a follow up to the last question. Knowing your experience writing in New York and kind of the, I don't know, the, not, I don't know what the, the word, word is, but um, kind of figuring out when it was, when you had maybe learned what you thought you went to New York to learn mm. and when it was time for you to go home and kind of what was, 
um, if there was a, a moment, uh, yeah, that, that spoke to you, you were like, it's time now. Um, so, were y'all in the same class? No? We were, I was a year after. Okay. No, I mean the same, like, graduating class. Wow. Okay. Um, so, there's two answers to that. The first answer is I, I realized I needed to come back home when I found myself relying too much on students to actually be like the soulful presence in my life that I was used to at home. Mm. You probably don't remember this, but like one day I was in Professor Dunbar's car, I was driving, police stopped me. I remember. You ran out of your house and you were like, are you okay? I'm stopped in, Pol in Poughkeepsie all the time. People would see me who knew me and they would just drive by. And like the feeling I felt in my heart when you ran out there to see if I was okay was like an amazing feeling, but it was also like, I'm like, okay, I'm relying on these students to do the work that like family and friends should. Similar experiences happened with y'all. Like we, y'all relied on us, we relied on y'all, maybe too much. The second material thing that happened is that like, you know, when I was at Vassar, I busted my ass, I did what I was supposed to do, I did my writing, I did my teaching, I did my service. And when it came time to come up for tenure, I ended up in a police station. I literally ended up in a police station in an interrogation room with people telling me that I'd done some shit that I would never ever do for coming up for tenure. I left Mississippi pre pre precisely because that's not the future I wanted. So when I was sitting across from that detective and he's telling me I would need to take a polygraph test and I'm like, let's take a polygraph test. I didn't do whatever the fuck you blaming me for doing. I was just like, like it, it, <laughs> this can happen in Mississippi. You know, mm -hmm. but when I leave the, the precinct, the only person I had who had my back was Professor Dunbar because I wasn't about to burden y'all with what happened. And I just didn't find, I'm not trying to diss my colleagues, I'm not trying to diss the administrators. People are who they are. I just couldn't find like a soulful, loving presence beyond Professor Dunbar and beyond my students, which meant to me, and my grandmother got really sick, mm -hmm. which means, which meant to me, I needed to come home, not to save Jackson, but to literally like save myself. Mm -hmm. So. That's when it was time for me to come home. Okay. Right. I think about home a lot, which is why. Yeah. 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 So thank you. All right. Thank y'all so much for coming out. All right. So. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.